You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. Welcome to today's episode of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi, and oh, do we have a good show lined up for you today. John Warlow is our featured guest. He's going to be with us for the entire show. We're going to be talking about a range of things, but most notably the sellability score. The business talk show called Critical Mass Radio Show airs live on Tuesdays and Wednesdays at 4 p.m. and Thursdays at our special time of 3 p.m. And of course, all of our shows will be aired live exclusively on Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net. If you're listening to the show as a podcast, say on iTunes or Stitcher, Spreaker, or one of the other podcasting services you might use, we do encourage you to listen live during our broadcast times. This show is brought to you by our advertisers, Brandman University, Center Club, Commercial Bank of California, Decision Toolbox, MBN Design, Smart Business Magazine, S&H Rubber, Succession Strategies, Tone Software, and UPS Protection. The goal for this show is to help your listening audience of CEOs running middle market firms across North America to improve your decision-making skills. So let me ask you, what is your business worth to someone who might want to buy your firm? And what can you do as the business owner to make it worth even more in their eyes? Well, that's what I'm going to talk about Talk about with John Warlow today. John, welcome to the radio show. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. And let's get started. Tell me a little bit about you. Let's discuss a little bit about your professional background. And how did you get to this point in your career? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've been involved in four different startups that I've uh, I've exited and and probably skinned my knees a few times and and learned a few uh, lessons along the way. I tried to codify some of those lessons in a book I wrote called Built to Sell, which was uh, back in 2011. And and more recently, I'm involved in a a new company called The Sellability Score. So that's a a 20-year career in uh, in a a nutshell. You hit the high points, and I appreciate that. And we're talking with John Warlow, and he's he's all about being succinct, ladies and gentlemen. So we're going to have a very good interview today. Let's talk a little bit about your firm and kind of how the book has gotten you to this position. We're going to spend a lot of time today, ladies and gentlemen, talking about the sellability score and the elements of that. But before we get there, tell me about your firm, John. Yeah, sure. So, the, you know, the the company actually came out of the book, which is a little bit backwards. You know, most company, most uh, you know, business owners often write a book to promote their business. I actually um, wrote the book first, and, and the sellability score kind of evolved out of that, actually. The, um, we did some marketing for the book, and one of the things we did was we built this questionnaire, which would allow a business owner to understand how sellable their company is. Kind of like that Cosmo or Men's Health test. You go in and answer a series of questions, and it'll give you a sense of how sellable your company is. And we launched this thing as part of the marketing for the book, and it was by far the most um, you know successful element of our marketing. And it got us to thinking, you know, if we if we built a more scientific version of that questionnaire, um, it, it could help a lot of people because a lot of business owners want to know, you know, do I have a company that's worth something? Whether they want to sell it or not is somewhat immaterial. They, they want to know that they're building an asset that, like their stock market portfolio or their home, that it's going up in value every year. And unfortunately, for a lot of businesses, that's not the case. A lot of companies don't go up in value. They're 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 kind of just treading water um, for a lot of the reasons we'll talk about. I'm sure. And we're talking with John Warlow, and I'm Rick Franzi on Critical Mass Radio Show. John first came to our attention in person at a Renaissance Executive Forums meeting this uh, earlier this year where he presented the sellability score, his book, Built to Sell, and we were actually 
I began the training program on understanding the sellability score. Many of the members of my community here in Orange County, California, have taken the assessment, and we're having a meeting in two days, John, where we're going to be going through their individual reports, and uh, Jim Canfield, CEO of Renaissance Executive Forums, is coming up to lead that session. So having you on the show today is very fortunate because many of my members are listening to the show live, and then they're going to be able to participate in part of your intellectual property on Thursday here in Orange County. So tell me about the sellability score, uh, and, and just if you could explain it at a high level, because we're going to get into the details, but co- set the context for it, please. Yeah, by all means. So again, it's a, think of it maybe like a Myers-Briggs survey, where you are answering a series of questions. There are 30 of them in total. And we delve into some of the basic questions about your company. So you know, how many employees do you have? How much revenue do you have? Uh, you know, what industry are you in? And we move into some of the more advanced questions that really drive sellability. So we look at how much recurring revenue you have, uh, what kind of management team you built, how, how dependent the business is on the owner. And so we get a fairly comprehensive view of your company, which allows us to score you on these eight key drivers of sellability. Now, the most exciting part of what we do is we've been able to quantify, statistically prove that the there is a direct empirical relationship between your sellability score and the value of your company. So through more than 13,000 cases now, we've seen that the average sellability score for all of our, our, our businesses that have gone through the survey, again, more than 13,000 now, is about 60 out of a possible 100. It's 59.5 to be exact. And those businesses get an average multiple when they get offers to buy the business of 3.7 times pre-tax profit. So for you know our conversation, imagine if a company with a million dollars in profit, that company's worth about 3.7 million to a buyer. Yet for those companies that achieve a sellability score of 80 or greater, their multiple is 6.8 times pre-tax profit, almost double that of the average scoring business. And so that gives us tons of energy when we see those statistics because we know that by working on these eight key drivers, we're moving up the value of the companies who uh, who work with us and use the tool. You know, John, uh, as I said, in uh, my entire community here in Orange County uh, that are members of our CEO peer groups have taken this sellability score and and Jim Canfield is going to be leading the session on Thursday of this week. A um, couple of the early returns that I got from people that took it, they were fascinated that it took about 13 minutes to take the assessment. It It is really well designed that it doesn't take a lot of time from the business owner's perspective to input the information required to generate the score. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, business owners are busy, right? They're, they're running companies, they're hiring employees, they're they're signing leases, they're designing products. I mean, they don't have time to sit down and do a theoretical academic exercise. So we want to keep it short, crisp, use language that they understand and, uh, and, and produce a report that has valuable uh, value that's, that's really actionable. You know, I think the, the one thing that distinguishes a business owner from a corporate manager, and, and I've had the opportunity to kind of view both in my last company we sold to a lot of the corporate managers versus business owners, is I find business owners to be incredibly action-oriented. So they're not into navel-gazing, again, philosophizing or spending hours kind of strategizing about their business. They want to see some information, and they want to take action. Even if it's a small incremental gain, they want to take action. So they'll see a speaker. They'll read a book, and, and they're, they're just action-oriented. They're like, I'm going to take this one idea and put this into, uh, into action. And so that's, uh, you know, that's the, the kind of person we're writing to when we write the questionnaire. 
Excellent. You're listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show. We're going to uh, step away for just a brief minute. When we come back, I'm going to ask John to explain the scalability trifecta. So don't go anywhere, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be right back after these words from our commercial sponsors. Commercial Bank of California, or CBC, is a well-funded, full-service bank located in the heart of Orange County. CBC is ranked in the top 6% nationally for financial strength. Commercial Bank of California was founded in 2003 by a group of Orange County's finest entrepreneurs. To this day, our bank is governed by our founders, including General William Lyon of William Lyon Homes, Alex Morello of the Morello Group, and Frank Willie of Fidelity National Financial, to name a few. In short, we are a bank founded, built, and run by entrepreneurs, for entrepreneurs. Not every business in Orange County should be our customer. However, if your business is looking for a bank that can assist in finance, production, analytics, and risk management, there's no better bank to choose. To understand the true power of how Commercial Bank of California can help you achieve your goals, give us a call at 714-431-7000 or visit us on the web at www.cbcal.com or at our new headquarters at 19752 MacArthur Boulevard in Irvine. Member FDIC. Can we talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire or try and pass that business on to your children? At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation, safely and securely, ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714-560-9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience. That's Succession-Strategies.com. Today's businesses are embracing voice over IP telephones and unified communication desktop technologies to more effectively communicate and collaborate with their customers, suppliers, and colleagues. The Reliatel management software from Tone Software Corporation helps organizations of all sizes manage their communications technologies to ensure great voice quality and better levels of service and reliability throughout their business. Through Reliatel, you'll gain higher return on investments from VoIP and unified communications technologies while lowering the associated operational support and maintenance costs. Learn more. Visit www.tonesoft.com or call 800-833-8663 for information on Reliatel by Tone Software, the solution for quality business communications. Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. I'm your host, Rick Franzi. If you'd like to join me on LinkedIn, I am Richard Rick, R-I-C Franzi. Our Twitter handle is CEO Peer Groups. And if you'd like to follow our radio show via podcast, open up your favorite podcasting software, type in Critical Mass Radio Show, and uh, you'll automatically get our updates. We do three shows a week. Today, our guest is John Warlow. 
But first, I'd like to thank and acknowledge our listeners who download our show as a podcast. Over the last 30 days, you've downloaded over 18,000 episodes, and we here at the program appreciate your continued and growing support. Of course, you can hear our show on octalkradio.net or anytime on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker.com, hundreds of middle market business websites whose CEO have been guests on our radio show and various podcasting software. All right, John, let's talk about the scalability trifecta. Can, can you discuss that concept for our audience? Yeah, sure. And let me get into it by describing some of the biggest challenges that we see business owners uh, being faced with. And, 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 it, and it comes about naturally. You know, a lot of business owners are deeply passionate about what they do. And when they get in front of a customer, the customer loves the, the passion that they have for the product or service that they offer. And the customer sees that glint in the eye of the business owner and they say, look, you could you know, provide us with more and more things. And pretty soon the business owner is going beyond what they're really good at providing and serving that customer across lots of different products, selling them lots of different products and services because the customer sees the passion the business owner has and the business owner is a subject matter expert in their industry. Pretty soon, however, that business owner is, to use an expression, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. They're, they're selling lots of different products and services to just a few customers. And that's the definition of an unsellable company. Why? Number one, it's because it's dependent heavily on the owner to deliver all those products and services. Two, they're not differentiated. Typically, businesses start out with having a great idea, but when they go too far afield from that idea, they don't, get, they don't stay differentiated. So they're selling a commodity product. So this is called the owner's trap, when they're, they're, the business becomes deeply dependent on the owner and there's nowhere for the business to grow. When there's no more hours in the day, the business just stalls in growth. And you get into the owner's trap when you reach this kind of plateau of revenue. It could be happening at 500 grand in revenue or 3 million in revenue or 8 million in revenue, wherever it happens, you just reach this plateau. And so the scalability trifecta is the way to bust through that plateau and start to grow again when you hit that stall point. And it comes down to the fact that scalable businesses have three things in common. They've got a product or service that meets these three criteria, and I call them the scalability uh, trifecta. And it is that your product or service needs to be teachable to employees, valuable to customers, and repeatable. And that's the trifecta, teachable, valuable, and repeatable. And so what business owners need to do is think about their business and start whiteboarding all the products and services that they sell and judging them on the degree to which they're teachable to employees, valuable to customers, and repeatable. And then isolating just those products and start to really zero in on selling more of the things that scale. Does that help, Rick? That helps very much. And so in reading your book and thinking about that, I think that is a a key point because you need all three of those elements. Uh, Two out of three, John, doesn't work. You need to have all three. You do, you know, and, and, and it doesn't matter what industry you're, you're in. You know, a lot of people say, well, that sounds interesting, but that wouldn't work in our industry. I mean, <laughs> um, you, you can look at industries that are deeply dependent on individuals, people, to do the selling. So, for example, if you, think, if you look at um, the typical uh, photography company, as an example, you've got photographers. My, my, my guess is a lot of time anybody listening you know, hired a photographer. They didn't hire a photography company. They hired a person. And that's very typical of hiring a photographer, and it makes those businesses very unsellable. They tend to be just closed up when the photographer wants to stop working. Now, contrast that to a photography company 
that has identified the trifecta of scale. And, and the company I'm thinking of is a little company in, in, in the UK called the School Photography Company. And all they do is school photographs. Um, it's teachable to young photographers because they, they've documented their eight-minute formula for getting kids in and out of a classroom quickly. Um, it's valuable because headmasters in England want to have kids learning. They don't want them goofing around the hallway waiting for the photograph to be taken. And the eight-minute formula is what headmasters want and buy. And, of course, it's repeatable because as parents, we repurchase that photograph of you know, documenting the progress of our kids every year, right? And so there's a business on its surface, photography. I mean, who could scale up a photography business? I mean, that by its very nature is a personal service business. But even a personal service business like photography can use this teachable, valuable, repeatable schema to start thinking about how to scale their business. Excellent. We're talking with John Warlow. We're talking about specifically his invention, his IP, sellability score, and also his book, Built to Sell. Uh, John, why don't we take a look at, on the other side of the equation, the individuals that buy, and companies that buy a business. When you look at what acquirers buy when they buy a business, what does your research show that they that the acquirers actually buy? Really, what acquire, it's interesting. When business owners get that question, um, business owners think that an acquirer is buying their name, their brand, uh, their location, their reputation in the community. It's been my experience that acquirers don't buy any of those things. Really, what acquirers are buying, in particular financial buyers, there's this, you know, the strategic buyer is slightly different, but most transactions in, in the middle market happen with financial buyers, people buying companies for their financial assets. And what the buyer is buying is the future stream of profit in the company. They are buying today the rights to the future stream of profit in your company. And you know, your brand, your location, your reputation in the community are only inputs into the output of what they're actually buying. But don't ever confuse what a buyer is buying. The buyer is buying your future stream of profit. And so you know, the, the job of the business owner who wants to increase the value of their company is to make sure that the future stream of profits that their business is projecting in the future is, number one, as large as it can be, but number two, as reliable as it can be. Because, again, the more reliable the future stream of profits, the higher the multiple that business owner is going to get for their company. So you really are zeroing them in on one metric, not future stream of revenue. It is future stream of profit. And then how large is that future stream predicted to be and how reliable is that predicted to be? That's correct. Now, that's that's really for a financial buyer. Again, in the mid-market, whether it's a private equity company, uh, you know, family office, a, a you know, a financial buyer is buying your future stream of profits. Right. The the exception to that rule would be a strategic buyer, where they're buying your company not for its future stream of profits, but what your company means to them in their business. And that's a that's a bit of a head shake for a lot of business owners to real to get their head around. But the, right. what they're buying is how much economic value your company brings to them when they own it. Um, good example of that would be Skype. 
when they were sold to Microsoft, Microsoft paid $8.5 billion for Skype, which was a money-losing company at the time of the, the acquisition. Now, why would Microsoft pay $8.5 billion for Skype if it was losing money? Well, for Microsoft, I think they looked at Skype and said, you know, we can sell more of our software, more, X, you know, more Office, more Xbox, more Windows, because we own Skype, because we know have a relationship with all those Skype users worldwide. If we integrate Skype into Microsoft product, we can get people to buy more Microsoft product. Again, when business owners think of a strategic buyer, oftentimes they're saying, well, if company X bought us, we could sell a truckload more of our product or mm -hmm. service. And, and that's a wrong-headed way to think, in my experience, in dealing with these buyers. What they want to know is how much more of their stuff, more products they can sell right. in acquiring you. So again, Microsoft didn't buy Skype so that they could sell more Skype services. Right. Microsoft bought Skype so they could sell more Microsoft products and services. Again, flipping that on its head and getting business owners to really think about um, you know, what their business is worth in somebody else's hands is, is, the, is the kind of secret sauce for, for understanding who a strategic buyer might be. And they, of course, are going to buy the business for the highest possible price because they have a strategic reason to do so. Right. We're talking with John Warlow. But, John, your, your experience is that most middle market transactions are financial buyers. It's rare, more rare to see them being a strategic buyer. So what we talked about about future stream of profit is really the core issue when you're looking at the valuations on your business as from an That's acquirer's exactly perspective. Right. Okay. We're going to take a, a, a short time out when I come back. John, I want you to share the present value example for the future stream of profit and help our audience of business owners and middle market firms to understand how you would suggest that a financial acquirer would predict and look at the present value. And we'll be right back after these words from our commercial sponsors. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. that 73% of consumer packaged goods and retail products fail miserably within their first year? Why? Because they find themselves in the pit of unawareness. You don't want to go there. Call me and I'll make sure that your packaging gets noticed. You know how I know? Because I'm the founder and creative director of MBN Design. We're one of Orange County's most established and trusted design firms. With over 20 years of experience, I can ensure that your brand will always stay new. Ask me how our packaging sold millions in months or see for yourself other success stories on our website at www.mbndesign.com. We're MBN because we're making brands new. 
Call 714-458-8701 and talk to me, Hector Garcia. That's myself. 714-458-8701. I'll be waiting for your call. UPS Protection has been protecting systems in the U.S. against brownouts, blackouts, and poor quality power for over 25 years. We provide power protection systems, including UPS, lighting inverters, generators, and service for clients from coast to coast. We specialize in solving all your power needs. As a direct reseller of the best brands in the industry, including Liebert, Powerware, and APC, we can solve all your power protection needs. Protecting your power is our main goal. We offer on-site or depot repair of our critical equipment. To better serve your budget constraints, UPS Protection also offers both reconditioned and new products. Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Frenzy. John Warlow is our guest. And before the break, John, I said I was going to ask you if you could help us to understand um, how an acquirer, which is a financial acquirer, would look at present value of your future stream of profit. So can you give us a a kind of a a math example that would help to explain that to our audience? Yeah, sure, because, you know, a lot of business owners trade multiple stories like they trade fishing stories. You know, you're at the bar or you're at the golf course and someone says, you know, hey, did you know Steve sold for four times earnings? And, well, that was nothing. Marty got six times and all I think, you know, I think my business is worth seven times. I mean, that that shortcut way of valuing a business of of looking at a multiple of earnings has become sort of a legend but what's really i think much more important for business owners to understand is the math that drives the multiple the math that the acquirer does while they're in the boardroom trying to figure out what to offer to buy your business they won't feel compelled to tell you the math that they're doing to arrive at a multiple to you know to buy your business for, um, but let me tell you what it is now, so you can kind of defend yourself in a negotiation. So the, the math they do is called discounted cash flow, and what they're basically doing—it's a fancy MBA you know term—but what they're basically doing is saying, okay, what am I willing to pay today for the rights to a future stream of profit? And it's math that we've all done in our personal lives, right? Like so if I said to you, Rick, you know, I think in a year's time, this, this thing is going to be worth $100. This baseball card is going to be worth $100. Uh, but it's going to take you a year before it values to that much. Well, you're going to look at what you're willing to pay today for a card that might be worth $100 a year from now by asking yourself, well, what return on investment do I want to get? And if your return on investment is, let's say, um, you want a 15% return on your money for buying a baseball card, you'd spend today $86 to buy the baseball card that a year from now you'd expect to be worth $100. It's simply $100 divided by 1.15 is how you get to $86. And that's the math that an acquirer will do. They'll look at your business and say, great, this business has been chugging along, churning out $500,000 EBITDA every year for the last five years. Well, that's pretty predictable that next year it's going to also make five hundred grand. So what are we willing to spend today for the rights to five hundred grand a year from now? The trick comes, and the nuance is, that most businesses also expect to make money in two years. The, the difference, though, for the second year of profit, they're going to discount it by the rate of return 
twice. Once for the first year, they've got to wait for their money, and another time for the second year. And then in the third year, they're going to discount it three times because they've got to wait three years and so forth. And then to arrive at what the business is worth in the eyes of the financial acquirer, you're just going to add up what they're willing to pay today for each of those that those profits years into the future. Um, it's a relatively complicated thing to, 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 to describe over the, the air. Right. Um, but simply Google discounted cash flow is a way to, to take a look at, uh, at doing that math. But the key principle that, that you need to remember, I think, is, is that they're paying for your future stream profit and they're discounting it by the re- return on investment they need to exceed in anything they invest in. So the high, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think a key point to reinforce is that this is a non-emotional math equation that sometimes on the selling side, it's hard to get discount the emotion out of the fact that we're selling our business and being able to deal with just the facts of how a financial acquirer is valuing your business. It's so important. It's such a such a brilliant insight. The people on the other side of the negotiation table are going to be MBAs. They're going to be, you know, very surgical in their analysis of your business. Uh, they will bring no emotion to it. There are another hundred companies just like yours out there that they are going to consider buying, and so you cannot expect them to have any emotional investment in it. And that can be very off-putting for most entrepreneurs. And I would call myself one where you're. You, you you put all your heart and soul into a business, and you're looking across the table at a financial buyer uh, who may as well be buying a you know a, a package of coffee. They're 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 just not emotional about it. So that's a really good insight that you've got to park your emotion if you can, and bring to it um, much more clinical, uh, objective proof. Because if if they offer you something as a business owner that is lower than you expect or lower than you think your business is worth. Um, let's say you think your business is worth five times earnings and you get an offer from a financial buyer for four times earnings. Well, debating with that financial buyer about why your business is worth four times versus five times because Bob got five times for his business and he's in the same industry or the industry is you know five times and I can tell you three other businesses. Having that debate with a buyer is somewhat irrelevant. The buyers made up their mind that they're willing to pay four times for your business. What you've got to understand is the math they do. And the discounted cash flow math relates to the risk associated with your future stream of cash. So if they're offering you a number that's lower than you want, it can only be one of two things. They either think that your future stream of profit is not going to be as big as you say it's going to be, or they think it's a risky proposition to buy your company because you've got so much risk associated with your company that they would place a very high rate of return and therefore a very high discount rate. So the long and the short of it is you've got to find a way to de-risk your business in the eyes of an acquirer. That's really the secret to increasing the value of your company in the eyes of the financial buyer. And that was a perfect setup, John, for for where I want to take the last segment of the radio show. You're listening to Critical Mass Radio Show. John Warlow is our featured guest. We're talking about his intellectual property, the sellability score, which has been used by over 13,000 companies to help to understand the value of their business and the drivers of value. It up to this point, we've sort of put all the chips on the acquirer side as far as the the negotiations and the valuation uh, beyond the pure profit that the 
company is projected to make based on historical performance. After the break, John, I want to start to uh, spend the rest of the show sort of helping our business owners understand what they have on their side, which is really, I think, the true power of the sellability score and the assessments and the reports and the rest of the value that your company brings to the marketplace. So when we come back, I'm going to start by asking you to talk about the two main drivers to making your business valuation as bulletproof as possible, ladies and gentlemen. Don't go anywhere. You're going to want to hear this answer as well as the answers to the other questions here on Critical Mass Radio Show with John Warlow after these words from our sponsors. Smart Business Network is a business-to-business multimedia company providing insight, advice, and strategy for C-level executives of fast growth, middle market, and large companies. As one of the nation's largest publishers of local management journals, under the Smart Business name, Smart Business Network publishes 19 regional print editions, presents dozens of large and small-scale business conferences and award programs, and produces a vibrant interactive digital media presence. For more information, visit us at www.sbnonline.com. SNH Rubber is a manufacturing company in Fullerton, California. We specialize in custom-molded, extruded, and stamped rubber parts. If your next job requires a rubber part, we would appreciate the opportunity to quote on it. We serve aerospace, automotive, and many other industries. We work with many types of rubber, including silicone, EPDM, neoprene, uninitrile, and Viton. Our quality system is ISO and AS9100 approved. Over our 47 years in business, the SNH brand has become known for superior quality, quick turnaround, and competitive pricing. Please check out our website at www.shrubber.com or call 714-525-0277. Let SNH be your ceiling solution. There's something positive about the word up. When things are looking good, they're looking up. When someone's down, you cheer them up. So how do you move up? Well, when it comes to getting your bachelor's or master's degree, there's one university that stacks up, Brandman University. Brandman is ranked by U.S. News and World Report as one of the nation's top ten universities for online bachelor's programs. Brandman's online graduate programs in business and education also receive top honors. So look us up at brandman.edu. Brandman University. Move up. Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. I'm your host, Rick Frenzy. John Warlow is our featured guest on this program. Our audience demographic is 98% business owners and executives who listen to learn from the experiences of our guests. If your firm is interested in reaching these top decision makers, then advertising on the show is the answer. Each month, our sponsors gain valuable exposure through their support of our program. And with our exclusive prospect engagement program, Critical Mass Radio Show delivers up to 24 warm prospects to each of our platinum advertisers each year if you'd like to learn more contact rose chamara at 951-515-4661 that's 951-515-4661 all right john before the break i said we're going to kind of turn the tables now and start to arm our business owners with ammunition to help them bulletproof their valuations can you talk about the two main drivers to making your business valuation as bulletproof as possible yeah by all means so there are really you know eight key drivers of sellability. When you go through the sellability score, you'll get a report, and there are eight key drivers. Uh, the two biggest drivers of the, you know, the, the overall score itself uh, and the ones that are linked most closely to getting a premium offer for your business, the, the first one is, is, is a surprise, I think, to a lot of business owners when I tell them. And that is that by offering a product or service for which you have a virtual monopoly, 
you that single fact has more to do with driving up the value of your company than any of the other eight drivers we look at. So again, what does that mean? It means that you find a product or service for which you have a differentiated value proposition. That's marketing lingo for something that you are unique at delivering, that you don't have five, ten other competitors in your market bidding you down on price. The reason that is so important to buyers is because when you have a differentiated value proposition, a buyer can see that. They can see that you have pricing authority, meaning you can set the price for your product. When you have pricing authority, it creates this nice little virtuous cycle which allows you to continue to grow the business. When you have pricing authority, you get better profit margins for your your, your product. When you have better product uh, uh, profit margins, you're able to invest more in sales and marketing, more sales and marketing, more differentiated, more differentiated, more pricing authority. And you create this wonderful little domino effect. And and buyers love products that are unique. It's, it's, it's why one of the biggest mistakes I think we make as business owners is doing too much cross-selling. You know, cross-selling is one of those basic business, um, you know, it's, it's, as, it's as American as you know, mother and apple pie. It's so important. It's got to cross sell customers. The problem with cross-selling is that, again, the more we cross-selling, the further and further we get a, a, away from that one product or service that is really unique and that we are really different at offering. And so that's number one driver. And, again, it's, it's statistically the most significant driver of value across all eight that we look at. The second one uh, relates to the growth rate that the business has been achieving in the last year. So those companies that achieve a, a growth rate, a top-line revenue growth rate of 30% or more are much more likely to drive a premium multiple. Why? Because buyers buy growth. Um, acquirers are typically much larger companies. They're often more mature companies, and they buy growth engines. That's how, in, in many cases, they grow. If you're, a, for example, a $100 million mature company, and your board of directors is saying, look, um, you know, Cindy, look, Bob, we want you to get 15 points of, of growth for this business next year. You've got to go out and find $15 million of revenue. And, you know, if you figure you can get two or three points out of just doing a better job organically selling to your existing customers, you've still got to go out and find $10, $12 million of revenue. And that's why they acquire companies. And they love to acquire companies that are growing because that helps them grow as, a, as an acquirer. So those are the two biggest drivers of value across the eight that we look at. And that's what's... Um that's what's so interesting about how you present the summary information. The one page gives the eight drivers on a dial format. It's very easy to understand. And I and, and what also is powerful is that in addition to helping an individual business owner understand how their company is performing on those eight drivers of value, you also present them with an industry average so that they can sort of benchmark themselves against their peer group. Absolutely, absolutely. Which I think is which is also an interesting gauge for which to kind of measure yourself against your direct peer group. We're talking with John Warlow, and we're talking about the sellability score here on Critical Mass Radio Show. Let's talk about this concept of reoccurring revenue and the types of recurring revenue. Can can you help our audience to sort of understand what your research suggests relative to the sellability score in that area? Yeah, for sure. So recurring revenue is another one of those major drivers we look at that drives up the value of your company. And it's not a surprise. It's not magic. 
It's that recurring revenue increases the durability of your profits. It makes your company look more attractive because it looks less risky. And recurring revenue comes in all different shapes and sizes. It can be something as simple as, as selling a product or service which has a consumable nature to it. So, um, you know, classic examples would be, you know, photocopiers need toner cartridges. Uh, razors need razor blades. The, those consumable things that just run out. Um, that's one form of recurring revenue. It's not the most valuable form. More valuable forms are when the customer makes a commitment to a platform, which makes them stickier as customers. And so, for example, when, when a Wall Street trader buys a Bloomberg terminal and they buy the physical hardware that sits on their desk, uh, they, bought a, they bought into a platform. They've made a few thousand dollar investment into a thing. And it makes them much more likely to buy Bloomberg's research and commentary about the market on a subscription basis. And it keeps them sticky. And, and stickiness uh, is what drives a recurring revenue model of customers and subscribers staying on. So subscriptions are another form of recurring revenue. Even contracts. You know, the, the, the swimming pool company who says to his or her customers, look, you know, every year you open your pool. I mean, this would be for not people in Orange County. This would be people from up north. Uh, every year you open your pool, uh, you know, you need to balance the chemicals throughout the summer, and then you close it down in the fall. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a contract where every two weeks we're going to come to you and we're going to preemptively come and, and measure and balance your chemicals. You won't have to call us. We'll just come and do it preemptively. That's a contract, a recurring contract. And to the extent to which companies can get those contracts, they'll drive up the value of their company enormously. So you're really talking about de-risking the revenue stream and, and creating more um not sustainable but and and not guaranteed but more reliable revenue streams through these models of subscriptions and recurring revenue that, that's that's exactly right you mean for a buyer you've got to you've got to imagine the buyer you know imagine yourself in the buyer's shoes for a moment the buyer's looking at, a, at an entrepreneur or a business owner or let's say they built a five million dollar company um, turning over uh, uh, you know five hundred thousand dollars in profit that that buyer is going to buy that business, and that owner is going to walk away, according to our research, you know, with a few million dollars in the pocket. Um, the question then becomes, how does that business perform when the owner hits the golf course? Um, because although most buyers want to keep the owner, in many cases the owner doesn't want to stay. They've just been handed a big check, and they 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 don't stay on, and therefore. The buyer's going to have an, insur- an assurance that the revenue is going to continue when the owner leaves. Too many owners, in in a lot of cases, are their company's best salesperson. They're the person that customers you know go to for new purchases. They're the you know they're the, the, the biggest driver of value in the company. And when the owner leaves, there's nothing left of the company. Um, and so by by really systematizing your revenue, by creating these recurring revenue uh, you know, streams in your business, whether that's through subscriptions, recurring contracts, you're, you're showing to a buyer that the business is going to continue on when the owner leaves. Um, I wrote this book that's actually coming out in February of next year called The Automatic Customer, and it shows that there are nine different subscription models. And again, they range everything from you know, personal services. This is one of my favorite examples, uh, Rick, is a, is a company called Mosquito Squad. They offer on a recurring model to treat your backyard for mosquitoes. And this is a big problem in, in, the, in, the, in, in Florida and Alabama and Louisiana and places like that where they have lots of humid summers. 
Well, they come on a preemptive basis and spray your backyard once or twice a month. And again, they do it on contracts. 70% of their contracts renew. So a choir looking at a business like that can say, I'm pretty much, you know, I can be pretty sure that two-thirds of these businesses or three-quarters of these, these customers are going to repeat every year. Uh, and that allows them much more confidence in buying that company. And so they get about a, a full turn more for their businesses than a comparable size personal service business. So, again, m- much more valuable than a, than a typical business. Excellent example, John. It brings it home and makes it um, very tangible, I think, not only for me, but for our listening audience of CEOs and business owners running middle market firms. We're talking with John Warlow. I just have a few minutes left with you. And one of the things that I, I wanted you to touch on was there is a a number one thing that your research suggests that uh, that a financial acquirer is really going to look at, and I wonder if you could kind of share that with our audience, the net promoter score, and kind of explain that and, and bring it home for the audience. Yeah, sure. So it comes back to, and not to beat a drum here, but it comes back to this idea that an acquirer is buying your future stream of profit, and the more reliable your future stream of profit is, the more valuable their company will be in the acquirer's eyes. We, the, the one number that acquirers uh, use to predict your future stream of profit, in particular very large enterprise acquirers, is they use something called the net promoter score. And net promoter score was, is an invention of a guy named Fred Reichel, who was a Bain consultant. He's written a number of books on the topic. But basically what, it, what he's discovered is that by asking your customers this one simple question, it will predict two behaviors. Number one, that customers will repurchase from you. Again, going back to recurring revenue. Number two, customers will refer you. And if you think about any growing company, especially in the mid-market, how they survive and thrive is based on referrals. And so what, what this one question, right, Kelt has discovered, is predictive of these two behaviors. And what he's been able to do is plot the growth rate of companies that do well on this attribute, this one number called Net Promoter Score, and he sees that over you know decades, the companies that do well on Net Promoter Score far exceed in terms of growth rate the average performing business. And so, the one number that you want to start to measure in your business is is discovered by surveying your customers and asking them the simple question on a scale of zero to ten. How likely are you to recommend this to a friend or colleague? When you get the answers to that question, you bucket your respondents. You categorize them. The people who give you a 9 or a 10, they love you on a scale of 0 to 10, um, are your promoters. The people who give you a 7 or 8 are your passives. They're not going to likely to repurchase from you, but they're not going to badmouth you. The badmouthing comes from the people who give you a 0 through a 6 on that scale of 0 to 10 question. To figure out your net promoter score, you're simply taking your percentage of promoters and subtracting your percentage of detractors. Um, so using that metric, companies like Google, um, USAA, Harley-Davidson, Amazon, all share net promoter score north above 50%, five zero. Again, it's a net number, taking your percentage of promoters, subtracting your percentage of detractors. And so by using that tool and starting to track it in your business, you can turn around and use the same currency that virtually every enterprise company uses to measure its predictive nature of its revenue. So 
uh, everyone from Intuit to Southwest Airlines to Apple to FedEx to UPS to Marriott Hotels uses the net promoter score methodology. So if your goal is to become acquired by one of these very large enterprise companies, know your net promoter score because they will ask for it. And it's a good best practice. It's a best practice to be asking that. And what a simple survey question that is. And what a powerful way. Here we are coming up on the end of the calendar year, which is obviously the fiscal year for many of the firms listening, to kind of put a best practice into place. You know, John, you just, independent of everything else that you shared with us, you just, I think you gave our audience of CEOs and business owners a a good to do. You said they're action oriented, and I agree. That's one, ladies and gentlemen, to write down and talk to your marketing department about instituting as soon as possible. Whether you plan to sell your business or not, understanding your net promoter score is, I think, a good barometer to measure and track. We're talking absolutely. About, okay, John Warlow. If someone wants to buy your book, built to sell, they want to uh, learn more about the sellability score and your firm, or maybe even get on the wait list for your future book that's coming out next year. How do they find you online? Builttosell.com. Just that simple. Outstanding. And, uh, yeah, that you'll find everything you need to know about uh, about what we do there. And, and, I, and I want to encourage everyone listening live today here on octalkradio.net or picking us up as an iTunes podcast or Stitcher. Uh, John's website is content-rich. There are videos. There's information. You can... You can get very familiar with the work that John and his team are doing and his, his associates across the country, uh, in North America, are doing uh, based on spending some time on his website as well as the opportunity to take the sellability score. Well, I want to thank Renaissance Executive Forums, of which I'm a part of, to for bringing you directly into my life via their, their uh, fall business review. John, I commend you on the work that you're doing with the sellability score in your book, Built to Sell. Uh, I want to thank you for being a friend of the program and welcome you to the Critical Mass community. Well, thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for our interview with John Warlow. I hope if you've listened to this show, you're going to tell some other business owners and executives about the interview and point them in the direction of John's website, Built to Sell. Uh, I'd like to thank our advertisers for supporting the program. Brandman University, Center Club, Commercial Bank of California, Decision Toolbox, MBN Design, Smart Business Magazine, SNH Rubber, Succession Strategies, Tone Software, and UPS Protection. If you'd like to connect with me on LinkedIn, it's Richard Franzi, F R A N Z I. My Twitter handle is CEO Peer Groups. And load up your podcasting software, type in Critical Mass Radio Show, and then you can get our shows three times a week and all the great interviews that we do. Our website is criticalmass4forbusiness.com. Until the next show, I hope all of your business decisions will move your company in a positive direction. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show, focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies. With your host, Richard Franzi. 